Good morning, everyone. The passage today is Matthew 11, verses 15 through 24. <clears throat> Whoever has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would, have been, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that are performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. All right, what's going on? Everybody good? All right. Woo. Is number one turned up for me there on the lights? All righty. Good. <coughs> okay. So uh, this is our passage today. We are going to cover like a ton of material today. So I'm going to have to remind myself to keep moving and not get hung up on any one particular thing. Uh, we're going to talk about um, uh, sort of the, the parable that Jesus is using here of children playing um, that has specific um, specific uh, sort of philosophical connotations to how we construct our, our view of God. Um, and, and we're going to talk about that. So, so in that conversation, we're going to talk about growth. We're going to talk about deconstruction. We're going to talk about faith crisis. Um, and then we're going to talk about a little bit about um, why it is so difficult to change your mind about anything having to do with God or, or most things. Okay, so um, I think it'll be interesting Interesting morning. Um, it's funny, whenever it starts off, I'm in a good mood. I don't know why. I'm like feeling happy today. Even with, even with all the like, you're going to Hades stuff down here. We'll get there. Um, but it's, when it, start, it starts off, I have, I have three little kids, um, all like under the age of 10. And whenever I read the passage now that says, whoever has ears, it reminds me of Mickey Mouse. And I want to say, say cheers. But if you don't have kids, you're not going to get that because we watch a lot of Disney Channel. Okay. Um, let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. And guide, um, guide our thoughts today as we move through this ancient passage of Scripture. Um, give us context. Give us wisdom and understanding. Give us um, knowledge, not just knowledge of, of, how, uh, of how to interpret this text, but give us wisdom on how to apply it to our lives, of how to um, take this idea and say, well, what does this mean in our particular context? Um, speak through me, give me clarity of thought and mind, and, and allow me to communicate clearly, and um, fill us with, with your peace today. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to start here in uh, 16 and 17. He who has ears, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. And we sang the dirge, and you did not mourn. So, um, first off, the, the he who has ears thing, this is 
Um, this is a, a Jewish rabbinical way of saying, um, I want you to, to stop and think really deeply about something for you. I'm going to give you a scenario, and I want you to ponder it for a little while. Okay, so this is sort of a, a call to meditate on the, a particular passage of Scripture. Um, and he tells this story, a, a parable about, about the agora, the marketplace. And he says, this generation is a lot like what you see in the marketplace. There are children run around, running around, and they are playing um, and you'll hear one kid say, we, I, I played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. And another one will, will look at another one and say, I sang a dirge for you, and you didn't cry. What is this? So the flute, if you remember, we talked about this not too long ago, um, is a, um, it's an instrument that was played at weddings uh, for celebration. Um, and so basically, this is like some kid wants to play a wedding game. Well, I wanted to play wedding. And you didn't want to play wedding with me. It's, it's two kids talking. And then, and then he says, and I, and, and so you're like, I'm not happy. I don't want to play wedding. And so um, I sang a dirge. A dirge is a funeral lament. Um, so he said, so you, didn't, you weren't happy. Uh, and so you, you wanted to play a sad game. So I sang a dirge and you didn't want to cry. You didn't want to play wedding. You didn't want to play funeral. Um, and what do you want? You don't even know what you want. You're just into rejecting everything I'm throwing out. So Jesus um, says, he says this stuff. And so real quick, also, if you're a parent here this morning, you probably understand this a little more than other people because um, you ask your kid, what do you want? And they say, I want peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You make them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you put it in there like, I don't want that. What do you want? I want ham and cheese. Okay, I think you go make a ham and cheese, and you put it there. I don't want ham and cheese. What do you want? Mac and cheese. <laughs> Open your mouth and close your eyes. I'm going to stuff this sandwich in your mouth. Okay, um, this is this is what children do. They they are testing to see if they can control other people. They are. There's all kinds of psychological stuff going on. Jesus says, "This generation, as I'm traveling around and I'm speaking to you all, this is what I see. I see you just rejecting things to reject them." And then he says this. He says, For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Right? Um, John and Jesus were both rejected by these people. Uh, John and Jesus had wildly different lifestyles, like polar opposites. So you would imagine if you're going to reject one, you're going to embrace the other. And if you're going to embrace, reject this one over here, you're going to embrace this one over here. Let me show you some, uh, some context of what I'm talking about. Jesus uh, regularly accepted invitations to these urban banquets. These things had a lot of meaning. Um, it was social identity. You ate with people that, that you identified with. And Jesus was always attending these things no matter who was throwing them. If rich people threw them, he went. If poor people threw them, he went. He did not care about necessarily his social identity. He cared about the social identity of others. Um, and he wanted them all to feel valued. Blessed are the poor, right? Not just the rich. Blessed are you as well. Um, John rejected all urban things. He lived out in the middle of the desert. He didn't eat any banquets. He ate locusts and honey, okay? Um, Jesus was a missionary within the culture. He lived in the cities. He moved from city to city talking to people. John never ventured into the cities. He was out in the desert, and he called people to come out to the desert to repent of everything that was happening there. Um, Jesus came partly as God's ambassador to initiate relations with sinners. So Jesus came with a message of um, uh, God is drawing near to sinners. He is drawing near to those who have um, done terrible things 
And, and, and God in the flesh here is going to eat with you and tabernacle with you. John, um, a lot of times, took the opposite approach. John primarily took the role of biblical prophet in, uh, in times of persecution, proclaiming judgment over sinners. Okay? They, they literally had um, different lifestyles, and they were preaching different things about God. Uh, but they were both rejected by the same people. There was no instance in which they were even remotely interested in receiving anything that any of the prophets were going to give them, no matter what the message was from God. Uh, And you see this all through the Old Testament as well. The prophets come, they deliver a message for these people to move them forward, to awaken them and enlighten them and move them towards a, a better understanding of who God is, eventually revealed in Jesus on the cross. So every time a prophet rises up and does this, they kill them. They say, no, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to change. And they kill the prophet. And there's all different ways that the prophets were killed. Um, and so giving a prophetic message was always a great way to get yourself killed. And so all of this is going on. Um, and they are just fully rejecting. No matter what is standing there in front of them, they just have decided, I'm going to reject no matter who comes out and says the message of God. Rejection. Um, so the question is, why are they rejecting all these people? Um, why is it that it's so difficult for them to understand? Well, so this morning is going to be filled with lots of, uh, lots of stick figures and stick drawings. Okay? So we're going to start right here with this guy. Um, this is their idea of the Messiah. This is what they were expecting. Sword, shield, Roman hat thing. I don't know how to draw that. Um, like, the Messiah was going to come with weapons of war and was going to smite the enemies. And establish Israel. What the prophets were actually bringing, though, was a completely different picture. What John was bringing and what Jesus was bringing, they were saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Here you go. Yet Jesus lived a a, a vastly different lifestyle than everything they were expecting. Okay? So the proclamation itself that Jesus is the Messiah... um, is an argument that this is what the Messiah looks like. It's a theological argument as well. It's not just the Messiah you've been waiting for is here, that is there, but it is also the Messiah you've been waiting for is here, but he is not anything like what you were expecting. So we're asking you to take your picture of the Messiah and do away with it and accept the picture of the Messiah that we are offering you. Um, And the people were not okay with this. They had a set idea in their mind of what the Messiah looked like. And anything that did not look exactly like what they were looking for, they rejected. Uh, We do this all the time, don't we? We have a picture in our minds of exactly what God looks like, and we reject every idea that doesn't look exactly like what we expect God to look like. Um, And usually it's along the lines of what the Jewish people were expecting as well. We expect God to look more like this. Powerful, the, the great smiter, right? Like the one who's going to deal with all, all the evil people. He's going to deal with them. He's going to purge the world of, of these enemies. Um, violent, vengeful, power as in military might, right? The ability to, to conquer. That is our earthly idea of power. Um, whenever we talk about powerful people, we typically are talking about people who have the ability to destroy the lives of other people. Um, Power has 
you know, it's something a lot of people want, but it also, if you think about it, has a little bit of this negative connotation. However, the picture we are given of Jesus, the picture we are given in the scripture of God in the flesh is Jesus on the cross. This is the God that we are given. Um, this is difficult. Oftentimes, this is either rejected or it is taken um, and sort of smushed together with our other ideas of what God should be like in our own minds. And so oftentimes, when something is presented to you, if it does not look already like what you want it to look like, if I say to you, the ultimate final expression, the most important expression of God that we have in scriptures, the, most, the, the biggest description of the Almighty God is Jesus on the cross. I believe that. That is what the early Christians were proclaiming. Um, people have a hard time with that because they don't want God to look like that because it's hard to associate ourselves with a God that looks like this, lowly, rejected, seemingly failing, washing the feet of other people, eating with sinners. Um, Jesus would not be welcome in a lot of churches today. Now, um, most people have no intention of changing their mind about God. No intention of it. They go out, they're looking for things that they agree with. Okay? Um, and we claim, typically, that we have pretty much figured this all out. Um, this is true of you and I. Um, when you think about it, when did John, John the Baptist, when did John begin to doubt? When he heard about the things that Jesus was doing. That's when John began to doubt because John also had a construct in his mind of exactly what the Messiah would look like. Jesus didn't even fit that model. And when Jesus was presented with an actual picture of God, he began to think, I don't, I don't know that this is really, really the Messiah because I think, I think the Messiah should look like this. And so he sent messengers to ask him, are you really the Messiah or should I look for someone else? Because you're not fitting the mold of what I look like. So even, John, even Jesus' personal, like, um, prophet that went before him and proclaimed that he was coming, when he actually was face-to-face with what the Messiah was like, had a hard time accepting that. This is who we are. This is what we do. We tend to be hostile to growth. Um, and so Jesus responds to his critics. He stands up and he says, all of you, this is the generation I'm, I'm living in. You reject everything that does not look exactly like what you want it to look like. And if you're only accepting a God that looks like what you want it to look like, then you are not accepting God at all. You're accepting yourselves in divine form. That's what you are accepting. So why is this? Why is it so hard for us to change our mind in light of evidence that we are given? Um, this is a, a, a really important question. Uh, it's important not just for your faith. It's important for every other aspect of your life. Um, because we are naturally tribal creatures. Um, there was a, a study done at, at years ago at, at the University of Southern California's Brain and Creativity Institute. Uh, it was a study conducted where participants were put in an MRI machine. And in this MRI machine, um, it's a machine basically, if you don't know what it is, they, they scan your brain activity. As you think about things, you have to lay very still. And there would be a person in another room speaking to them. Um, and, and before they got in this MRI machine, they would be taking, uh, they took a survey that where they listed their political ideas, their, their faith affiliations, basic ideas about who, how, what their worldview is, who they are, how they think. 
And hundreds and hundreds of people w- went through this test. They took the survey. They were put in the machine. And, and while they were in the machine, they were offered evidence that was contrary to what they already believe. And while they were doing this, they measured the brain and what was happening in the brain. So if you're, uh, if you're conservative, they would offer ideas against conservatism and why it's wrong and why it doesn't work. If you're progressive, they would offer conservative ideas against progressivism, why it doesn't work. If you're a Christian, they would offer um, faith-challenging things. If you're Islam, they would offer uh, evidences for Christianity and against Islam, stuff like that. Um, and, why you're in this, and, and you're hearing these things, and you can't really move or respond, but you're thinking about them. And what they found was the way your brain reacts to these ideas coming in from the outside, um, as in... This is the Messiah, not this. Uh, the way your brain reacts to that um, is it fires the same parts of the brain that fire when you are physically threatened. If someone comes at you and points a gun at you and says, give me your wallet, you feel your life is in danger. The parts of the brain that are firing when you are being challenged in your faith or your ideas or your philosophy of life or your worldview, that those are the same parts that are actually firing when your life is in danger. This is really interesting. Um, So basically, um, we are biologically wired to react to threatening information the same way that we'd react to a predator, if you will. So some of you have a worldview. uh, Most of us really have a worldview that is a product of our experiences, uh, compounded by our life experiences. um, And your brain loves consistency. And so what your brain does is it builds your faith like a house. All the parts are there, and they all fit perfectly, okay? Um, And it's very important that everything remain intact exactly the way it is, okay? So what happens is you're raised, and and as you're growing up, you're building this faith construct, and you have it all. You have your house here. And then one day, you, you, you read a book in high school, or you go off to college, and you have a conversation, or you meet somebody, and um, this whole new sort of piece enters in, this new idea, and it doesn't fit, you, your house is made of straight lines. This line is curved. Doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't fit with your faith construct. But you've received this information. And the problem is, once you read something or you hear something, you can't unread it. You can't unhear it. It just sort of hangs out there. Um, and so you have to deal with it. And so sometimes you take this thing and you're like, oh, okay. And you add that to your faith construct, except it. It replaces a part and it no longer fits. Everything is just a little off. Um, It has somehow shifted your construct of exactly who God is, exactly how to read the Bible, exactly what Jesus represents, exactly who God's people are, exactly how the Christian life and the church should function. And this new piece comes in and you aren't sure what to do with it. And this starts to happen. This is called a faith crisis. This is um, a... I would say this generation has, has more widespread instances of faith crisis every single day than any generation before us because of the um, instant access to pretty much the entire collection of the information that has been gathered by humanity in your pocket. And so we fact check things and we go back over things and we reread things. And I don't, can't tell how many conversations I've had where I was like, where they pretty much said, and I, and I read this, and this one little thing destroyed my entire faith, and I didn't know what to do with it, and so I threw the whole thing out. This is called a faith crisis. First thing I want you to know is this is normal. 
This is meant to happen several times in your faith journey. Um, there is no one that will not experience this unless you do something like this. You get this piece of information and you take it and you throw it back out and you reject it on principle. It doesn't matter if it can be proven. It doesn't matter if there's scientific data. It doesn't matter. I reject it and anyone who brings it to me is lying and they are either a fundamentalist or they're a liberal or they whatever. I reject this information. And this is what we tend to do because we must at all times now protect, stand and protect and defend our faith against all incoming information. Okay? This is what Jesus was dealing with. This is what John was struggling with. Uh, This is what many of you have spent your life being taught to do. I've taken many, many classes on apologetics. I know how this works. Um, I know how I know the attitude and the mindset behind defending the faith. This is what it looks like, because you don't know what to do with something that showed up and came in. Okay, many of you right now have something in your head. You're like, yeah, there's this thing that I read and thought about, and it's just been there, hanging out. Not sure where it goes. Not sure what to do with it. Not sure where to put it. And you're worried, and you're scared, and that's normal, and it's okay. Um. It's part of the journey, and that's actually what a bit of what I want to talk about this morning. Um, so, let's see. The problem is that the uh, the, the problem, the main problem is is it's not so much with the information. Um, the problem is is that we the moment God is all figured out, the moment your structure is done, um, it's got these nice neat lines and definitions. The problem is that. We're no longer dealing with God oftentimes when we talk about our faith. Um, we are dealing with somebody that, that, that we've been given or maybe even somebody that we've made up. Or, or, and if we've made him up, then we are in control. And so in passage after passage in the scriptures, we find God reminding people that he is, he is beyond and bigger and more. And he's calling them to, to rethink how they view God. Um, none of the disciples could easily receive what Jesus was telling them about the Messiah's death because there was nowhere in their theological construct in Judaism that said anything about a Messiah dying and then being raised from the dead. Jesus said it over and over and over again. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be killed, and three days later, this temple's going to rise. And they're like, what? I don't understand. Can you explain this again? He's like, okay, so I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. And they're like, what does that mean? What's this metaphor? He's like, guys... And he keeps telling them, and they don't understand it because it doesn't fit with their theological construct. And it wasn't until they were forced to deal with it, watching him die, they quit following, and then they go fishing, and then Jesus shows up at their local fishing hole. And they're like, oh, I guess that makes sense. But now what do I do? Because now I don't have a faith construct at all, and I have to rebuild this whole thing centered on Jesus. I need to go back and read the Old Testament. The early church, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And they had to reread it then in light of Jesus, the Messiah. Okay? Um, and that's where most of the arguments in the New Testament come from, by the way. Now, um, what do we do? So normally, here's the questions we tend to ask when we get new information, when we're looking for new information, when we're looking for authors and reading books and all kinds of stuff. Questions we tend to ask are, what best affirms my beliefs? Right? What, what makes it easier for me to hold on to my old way of living? Now, uh, the second one is, how can I avoid reforming my faith at all costs? Reforming my faith is a lot of work. Um, it's funny, the reformers went through 
incredibly painful times reforming and, and launching Protestant church. And so the Reformed church tends to have this slogan that is always reforming. That, that's, what we say, that, that's what they say. They say always reforming. I'm not reformed myself, but I love the slogan always reforming. Yet I don't think any of us really do that very well. Um, we're just there. We, we accept what we accept and we just hold on to it and we stand outside with the sword defending it at all costs. Um, so these are the questions that we tend, uh, that we tend to ask. And most people are very hostile to rethinking anything. I had this, okay, so this is where I'm going to offer a disclaimer. I'm going to talk about a so- topic and a subject that is sort of a hot button topic in the modern church. Um, and many people, um, have left their churches, um, because they disagree on this particular subject. This is one of thousands of subjects. It's the subject of creation evolution, of young earth, young earth creationism or the, the universe being 13.4 billion years old. So like, what is it? How do we do this? How do we read the scriptures? And the problem is, so I had somebody come to me not too long ago and they said, um, they said, I don't believe, this was like two months ago, I don't believe you can be uh, a follower of Jesus. I don't believe you can be a Christian unless you believe the earth is literally created six to 8,000 years ago in seven days. And, and we had a long conversation about this. Um, so I want to explain this. I grew up most of my life thinking that way. And I know I understand this. I understand the heart behind it. There's nothing nefarious about it. Nobody's trying to do anything wrong. Nobody's trying to reject anything or any evidence on purpose. Here's what's happening. And I want you to understand this is what's happening. This is one example of thousands of ways people read the Bible, okay? Um, here's what happens. So we have this idea, uh, seven-day creationism. This idea <clears throat> is a foundation upon which lots of things rest, okay? Um, for the last uh, really couple hundred years, if that, Christians have been really obsessed with this idea, evangelical Christianity in particular, um, that this is the only way to look at things, even though I could show you Lewis didn't read it that way, Augustine didn't read it that way either, um, and that was only 300 years after Christ. Um, so, but nonetheless, this is a basis upon which people read a lot of things. On top of this sits many things. At the very, very top, there's this idea that they feel deeply about, I am in need of Jesus. I affirm that, yes. I think everyone is in need of Jesus, desperately. I think this world desperately needs Christ. Um, however, this idea is sitting on top of another piece that, that is called, that, that basically says, I am totally depraved. Um, this is the reason that I need Jesus. This is, this is the faith structure that they're working from. The one under that is, uh, why am I totally depraved? Because there's original sin. This sin was passed down to me. Uh, from those who came before me. Where did that start? That started with the Garden of Eden. Okay? So all of this rests on top of the other thing. Now we're starting to understand the theological house structure. Okay? All of this fits together and works together. All of these pieces are necessary in this construct. What happens is, and what happened to me a long time ago, like a good 10 years ago, what happens is um, someone brings in another piece and they say, the universe is 13.4 billion years old. And you don't know what to do with that because you've been given this construct and you've been told this is the only way to read things. And this is, you have to read things this way. Any other way to read things is errant and wrong. Okay. Uh, and so we reject this information and, and you basically have to say, um, no, I, I reject that outright and, and I'm going to do everything I can to, to prove that is wrong because this, this is, 
the only way I know how to understand Jesus. So when you argue, I watch these two groups argue back and forth. I watch them argue, and they think they're arguing facts and scientific facts. They're not. Um, They're not arguing about seven-day creation. You're one person who is bringing in this scientific data is arguing against another person who says, I am in need of Jesus. So this person's facts is arguing against this person's desperate um, faith, uh, the basis of everything that tells them, I need Jesus, and they love Jesus, and they have a long personal experience with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so when you think you're arguing about one thing, you're not arguing about that thing. You're arguing about something else entirely. Which is why these arguments get so brutal. Which is why people usually can't agree to disagree and get along. Because if this idea is actually true, their faith is destroyed. By the way, this is again one topic in thousands every single day. You're never arguing about one particular thing. You're always arguing about your worldview and your faith in, in God who has loved you and saved you. Now, what are we to do then? There are several things you need to consider in the church. Several things you need to consider as you're reading the scripture. Several things you need to consider as you're engaging in theological debate. Uh, first off, this is about their faith being threatened. This is not about them. This is not about either side being ignorant, ignoring facts, any of it. We are hardwired to do that. Um, this, is, this is about their faith being threatened. You have to understand how important that is. And you can't just flippantly just try your best to destroy someone's faith. Second, um, you do it too. You have to admit that. You don't want to admit that. Um, I could, I, could, I could show the fundamentalists, I could show you some things that would, that would shake their faith if I really forced it on them. I could show you the progressive liberal, liberals in the church as well, some things that would, that would definitely bring them back and shake their faith and have them, and both sides are going to have to tear down and build this whole new construct. This is the faith journey. I'm not interested in destroying your faith. I'm interested in worshiping Jesus with you. Now, you do it too. You ignore things. You ignore evidences. Um, we all do this. We all do this. Uh, third, to be Christ-like is to practice empathy. That is what it means to be Christ-like. So when I walk into a theological debate, they said this, they said this. My first question is, are you being Christ-like? Are you being Christ-like? It brings me to my next point. Peace comes through grace, not defeating our opponents. You know what defeating our opponents is and getting them to assimilate to your mindset? You know what that is? That's Roman. That's Pax Romana. That's peace through the sword and Rome. Peace through, peace through power. Peace in the church comes through grace. That's why Paul starts every letter with grace and peace. Peace comes through grace. Understanding this is where they're at. This is where I'm at. Together we move towards Christ. That's why communion is so important and necessary in the church. It reminds all of us collectively how faith works. Um, And lastly, faith should not be built like a house to be defended. It is a path to be walked. This is a really hard place to come to. But this is a place that I believe if you're doing the hard work, you will end up. Um, 
Because if, let's see, way off my notes, way off my notes. Okay. Um, oftentimes when we build a house and we build all these walls and everything, what we're doing is we're, we're setting the boundaries and we're saying, you're going to keep out. Instead, what we should be doing is saying, I'm moving towards Christ. I'm always going to be reforming my thinking. I'm always going to be reading the scriptures anew. I'm always going to be trying to grow and better understand what it means to sit at the table with sinners, what it means to follow Jesus, to take up my cross and follow Christ. I'm always going to be pondering what, what resurrection looks like in our day, what this looks like. If Jesus rose from the dead, what does that mean for us here now? And we're inviting people to walk with us. Um, here's the thing. Nobody ever pulls out their phone and shows someone a picture of their family and begins to argue why their family, like the supremacy of their family. This is my wife, and she is the supreme wife. And I want you to see this. Here's all the things that she does. She's good at this. She's great at this. Here, nobody does this. This is not... Um, This is not how it works. What we do is we show the picture to somebody and we give them the opportunity to see what we see. This is how people come into the faith. It's not through arguing. Because you're arguing. You may, oftentimes, when you're trying to argue people into the faith, you're you're throwing out facts and constructs and all this stuff. and, and, And you're attacking this underlying thing that you will never get to this way. But if they understand that you are drawn to Christ because it's, it's beautiful. Gives meaning and purpose in your life. Has taught you to be a more, a, a, a more empathetic person who's less judgmental. Um, who, who can admit their faults and be honest. Who isn't playing the social hierarchy game. Who rejects it. Who embraces those who are lower than them and actually works to lift them out. Um, and who is not afraid to speak up when something is unjust and needs to be done. Who is not afraid to pour themselves out for the world around them and bring healing. Um, this is attractive. That is a path to walk, and you're inviting them, here's why I do what I do. And you walk the path instead of saying, well, it all starts with seven-day creationism. It's not a healthy way to spread the gospel. It's not. Um, I have a lot of friends who, um, I have friends who, both on the fundamental side and the conservative, uh, and, the, and the liberal side, who, who hop from church to church. Um, every couple of years, you know, I see them at like Thanksgiving's because some are extended family and stuff like that. And I see them and I say, I say, how's that church that you found last year that you're attending? Oh, we left that church. Why? And they've got some reason. They've always got some reason. The, uh, you know, the, either, either the gospel's not being preached or, or they're, they're too unloving or, or there's just all these reasons. And they go from church to church to church. Eventually, I mean, they're going to they're gonna visit all of them. And they're going to be no one else because nobody can live up to their construct of what the perfect church actually looks like. Nobody can. I'll be honest with you, most churches aren't even interested in that. We're not. I, I, if you have a contract, I'm, I'm like, cool, tell me about it. And when you're done, I can point out the things I disagree with and I can offer the evidences, but in the end, I'm going to invite you to take communion. That's what we're going to do. It's how it works. And we're going to ponder the cross. We're going to ponder what it means for Christ, God in the flesh, to pour himself out for all of us. Um, In fact, 
This is why the Nicene Creed exists. This is why the creeds exist in general. Um, so here's, here's the Nicene Creed. Very long. We're not going to read the whole thing. Don't worry. Um, now, this is... When I talk to other Christians, um, I, I love to talk about oftentimes the Nicene Creed. It's the, the oldest Christian creed that Christians have ever gathered together and said, okay, let's just simplify this whole thing. Let's just lay this out. Here's what, here's like minimum, if you can, if you can say this without crossing your fingers, you're in. Um, but notice a lot of things about, about this creed um, aren't mentioned. The things that Christians are regularly arguing about. Most of the hot button issues in Christianity today, the churches are debating, are not even hinted at in the Nicene Creed at all. The early church was not talking about them, and if they were, it wasn't a, a communion-breaking issue. Um, it doesn't address the age of the earth at all. It doesn't say whether or not we evolved or were created 6,000 years ago as is. Uh, it, it simply says, we believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. It's the most unspecific thing I've ever read. Yeah, he made it. But how? He made it. What about the things that are unseen? Seen and unseen. All of it. Now, uh, what, about, what about the afterlife, though? Because that's the, the most important thing in, in Christianity, right? The afterlife. Laying down exactly, exactly what happens. You know what it says? We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Well, wait a minute. That's, what about the five different words for, for hell? And what about like this? And what about, what about you know, eternal conscious torment or, or Christian universalism or, or annihilationism or, or uh, what is it, uh, conditional mortality? Like what about purgatory? What about all the, all the things that Christians argue about? It says, oh, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Super not helpful. In that argument over Thanksgiving dinner with your father-in-law. Just joking. Um, now, what about how to interpret the scriptures? It's literal? It's metaphorical? Is it, what, how are we to read this thing? How are we to read this? Um, he has spoken through the prophets. That's what it says. He has spoken through the prophets. What, what about Paul? What about, like, what about all these things? He has spoken through the prophets. That's, that's what the creed says. This is what the early Christians agreed upon. This is what they said. Um, it, talks, it talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that he is now and forevermore the Lord. It's very wide. How many things have you been online arguing about with other people and like breaking community with them? Or, or how many things have kept you out of out of, um, out of communities and out of all kinds of things have made you storm out of and separate yourself from family members that the oldest Christian creeds, most if not all of them, don't even address. Because they're not supposed to separate you. These issues are not. They're part of the faith journey. That's what they are. Um, Jesus ends this passage after this after this intro and this parable says, you're like children, you have no intention of changing your mind. You're just going to reject everything because it doesn't already fit your preset thing. And then Jesus says this, um, again, I'm not going to read the whole thing because we are about out of time here, but here's what it basically does. Um, it's a woe statement, W-O-E in English. Um, woe is, this, this woe statements are something that prophets did. 
It's, it's, it was basically a way, like, when somebody stood up, um, if somebody were to stand up right now and, and start a story, and they would say, once upon a time, that's a statement about what this story is, okay? What kind of author they are, they're writing fairy tale, fiction kind of stuff. When Jesus stands up and says, um, woe unto so-and-so, and then he mentions the day of judgment. This is something every prophet did. It was a way of saying, I'm a prophet. I have something for you to think about. Um, I'm, I'm going to render some judgment upon, about what I see here. Now, in this judgment, um, Jesus does a couple of things. He mentions Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, Jewish cities, all of them, all of them cities Jesus visited and, uh, and that should have accepted Jesus as the Messiah um, and that he did these amazing things. And we don't even have a list of what the things were, but apparently they were amazing. That's what the passage says. Amazing things happened in your cities that if they had happened anywhere else would have absolutely changed the course of their history. But apparently they didn't care. They're like, that was neat. Not changing anything about my faith construct. Now, uh, then he mentions some of these other cities. He, said, he mentions Tyre, Sidon. He says, if I had gone to Tyre and Sidon and done the same things, they would have repented. If I had done these same works in Sodom before it was destroyed, it would still be standing. I, I went to your cities and I did these amazing things and I said these amazing things. And it's sort of like, and when he says, alas, and, and uh, when he says, woe to you, that's a way of saying alas. It's like this mourning statement. He's like, he's like but, but alas, like, you are incapable of understanding what God is doing. You're so set in your ways that you can't change anything about yourselves. Even, even if God comes in the flesh and does these things in your, in your, in your midst, you're not going to change. He says, you don't recognize God because you have no desire to. You want God to simply just mold himself to your ideas of what God should be. And oftentimes it's tribal and it's not helpful. Um, he says they've already determined based upon their upbringing, their tribe, what Jesus looks like. And I wonder how many Christians regular, re- regularly reject the work of Christ as, the, as they see it. Like, you see God doing something. You see something that is obviously Christ-like. Obviously. And how many Christians do you see railing against it? Loving your enemies, welcoming the immigrant and the refugee, pouring yourself out, allowing your own identity um, to be aligned with these people who are hated, um, sharing the table with sinners and with outlaws, reminding people that the worst, most horrific sinner that you can mention, this worst criminal you can mention, reminding them, but that person is made in the image of God, so they're not an animal. And you say these things, and how many times do God's own people reject these things, even though these are literally the things that Jesus did? This is what we do. And if we don't start seeing it in ourselves and admitting it, admit it. Like, I, I, I'm trying to be regularly honest with myself and say, I have a, view, a few views that, that prob- possibly don't align with how Jesus would live. And I, ha- I have to point that out in my own life and admit that and do my best to reform my heart and center it around the things of Christ. I say all of this because there are people in your life that, that you are distancing yourself from, that you are arguing with, that you disagree with, and you're quoting different authors, 
and you, you think these are all your own original thoughts, oftentimes they're things that have been given to you, and oftentimes the things you're arguing about are not actually the things you're arguing about. You're arguing about your love for Christ, and you don't see how this other person can love Christ and hold this view, and they don't see how you can love Christ and hold this view, and you're just missing each other. And oftentimes what you need to do is show up at their house with some bread and a bottle of wine, and you need to pour it, and you need to take communion, and remind each other that the body of Christ was broken for you, and the blood of Christ was poured out for you. This is the church. Unified, not by conquering each other's thoughts and assimilating in each other's hearts. Um, Unified by grace. The grace we receive from God and the grace we pour out on each other. So our communion servers, you guys can take the elements and spread around the room uh, if you're here, yeah. Um, And so we're going to take some time and we're going to ponder Jesus on the cross. And this is is the big thing because... um, it's oftentimes hard for us. The reason we need to regularly be pondering the cross and what happened on the cross is because we are, we are when we do this, associating ourselves with someone who we would normally not associate with. We are, we are receiving and embracing and taking part in a picture of the most powerful being in all of the universe suffering and dying as a terrible cr- criminal on a cross. And the question as you take communion is, can you identify with this? Even though it's not a representation of the power that you crave even though it's not something that you even want to do. You don't want to live that kind of life. And if you were honest about it, you would admit that. Nobody really craves to live the life that Jesus lived. It looks difficult. But in communion, we identify in table fellowship with God in the flesh, and we we receive a reminder that it was all done for you, and there is an invitation there to follow and to change to change your ideas about God and center them on Jesus on the cross. And this is how resurrection enters into the world. And so let's take some time and let's pray for that healing, that resurrection, that reconciliation. And let's take communion together, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your thoughts are on all of this. I want to invite you to the table. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I want you to be reminded that the body of Christ is broken for you, the blood of Christ is poured out for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Help us to change and and receive your message anew every time. Every time we come uh, gather together in our house churches, here uh, with families in prayer. Um, Let us not be stubborn. Let us not be like children playing these games. Let us be honest. Let us admit the path is difficult. Let us be uh, there for each other when we are in faith crisis. Let us carry each other. Let us rest in the faith of others sometimes as we travel this path together, crawling towards you. Thank you, Father. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.